Have you ever been outside right before it's about to storm? And it seems as if things are getting a little bit darker, but you're not sure at first. And you can sort of smell that smell. It comes, you know what I'm talking about, before a storm comes. You might feel a, a couple of drops on your head and you think to yourself, was that, was that rain? You might feel a slight breeze and, and look at the trees and it's like, is the wind blowing? And then about 10 minutes later, it's pitch black and the wind is blowing like crazy and the rain is coming down. Anybody ever experienced this? Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Well, that is a great illustration of the way in which God is at work in the book of Esther. Like the wind at the beginning of a storm, you can barely feel it. You can just see a little of the effects of the, of the wind. That's the way God is at work at the beginning of this story. It's, it's tough to detect if he is there and what he is up to. A big event happens in Esther chapter 1, a queen is removed. A spot is, is open for another. Maybe God's doing a work there. We don't know yet. And then in chapter 2, the winds of God's presence begin to blow a little stronger. And that a Jewish girl replaces the Persian queen. Esther replaces Vashti. You have a Jew now who is the queen of the most powerful empire in the world. Yet she's not a bold Jew. She actually keeps her Jewishness under wraps for a bit. And her cousin, who is her father, he adopted her, Mordecai, is also in a position of influence as well in that he is working at the king's gate and he has connections with the king through the queen because she is his adopted daughter and we learn that he does at the end of Esther chapter 2 when, the, uh, when Mordecai discovers a murder plot at the king's gate and he lets the queen know, who lets the king know, and this is stopped. This murder plot is stopped. They're put to death and it is put down on record that Mordecai saved the king. So the winds of God's presence seem to be blowing a bit stronger, and then chapter 3 comes, and, and it stops blowing. It seems as if it stops blowing for a moment when we uh, have this wicked man named Haman burst on the scene. He is an Agagite. They were longtime enemies of the Jews, and he and Mordecai don't get along, Right? And Haman is promoted by Xerxes to be the second most powerful man in the empire. Everyone bows in Haman's presence, everyone except for Mordecai. And so Haman doesn't like that. He's got a big, big ego, right? We'll learn more about that today. And he plots and he persuades the king to wipe all the Jews out. So not only is Mordecai going to be put to death, but all of his people along with him. Well, the winds of God's presence after that began to blow once again very strong because we learn that Mordecai, when he learns about this plot and this decree to annihilate the Jews, he takes a stand for God's people and encourages Esther to do the same. And Esther decides to put her life on the line and go stand before the king without a formal invitation, which resulted in some losing their life. 
She is granted access to the king. She approaches him in a very wise way by inviting he and Haman to a dinner party. At the first party, though, the king says for a second time to Esther, tell me what you want, ask anything, it'll be given to you. She wisely waits to expose Haman. Meanwhile, after this first party, Haman is on his way home on cloud nine because he's just dined with the king and queen. And he has another encounter with Mordecai who refuses to give him the time of day. So he goes home angry. His friends and family advise him to build a gallows at his house, 75 feet tall, to hang and kill Mordecai on. Crazy story, isn't it? Great narrative. So we were left hanging last week on whether or not Esther has waited too long to reveal who she is and then try to turn the king against Haman. We don't know yet in this part of the story whether or not Mordecai will be dead by then. Is God at work? Is the wind of God's presence blowing at the beginning of this story and throughout this story or were we just imagining things? Well, today we're going to look at Esther chapter 6 and 7. If you have your Bibles, turn there, Esther 6. We're going to see God's presence in these two chapters. We're going to see his providential work more clearly here than almost anywhere else. The winds are going to begin to blow strong like a hurricane. In these two chapters, we have... The greatest example, one of the greatest examples of God's providence in all of Scripture and some of the strongest irony in the Bible. These two chapters are the two most ironic chapters in Scripture. No one could have written a a better script. And the reason why is because God is behind this, right? This happened and God is at work in this story in and through people and circumstances for his purposes, which what we heard about Nigeria today, that should comfort us, right? A timely word here. He's at work for the sake of his people and for his own glory. We see it as clearly here as we do anywhere. In these two chapters we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see God at work providentially. He is going to open the eyes of a blind king He is going to exalt a lowly Jew with the death sentence, and he is going to end the life of a powerful, seemingly untouchable Persian leader. So let's look once again at the providence of God in this story. Notice first we see God through providence opens the eyes of a blind king. That's point number one. God is going to work through a sleepless night of this king, And he's going to show him he has been exalting and promoting the wrong man all along. Look at verse 1. On that night, now remember, they just attended a, a feast hosted by Queen Esther, and the king was there with his buddy Haman. On that night, we're told the king could not sleep. Now think about this. They had their bellies full with a wonderful meal, right? They had been drinking the royal wine. You would think he would just drift off to sleep, but he doesn't. Can't sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. 
And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthan and Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. Again, we, we've said before that sometimes God works through miracles, right? We see that all throughout Scripture in, in open and obvious ways. He sends his people and he works miracles through them to get, his, uh, get people's attention. He also sends angels or even appears in, in various forms and, and speaks audibly from the heavens. And at other times, he is at work through Providence, And we've said over and over again in this study that God is only working through providence in the story of Esther. No angels show up in Esther. No prophets appear. God does not write anything on, on the wall. He doesn't appear in a burning bush. Yet, he is very much present and very much at work. Here we see him working through this king's sleepless night. I'm sure the king had a few. He was ruler over 127 provinces. The biggest, most powerful kingdom in the world. You think you got stress, he's got stress. So much so that even drinking the royal wine and filling his belly with wonderful food will not put him to sleep. He's got stress. But, but on this night, instead of doing what he probably normally did, which was go down to his harem, we learn. In, uh, in the history books that Xerxes, that was his favorite place to be, or uh, drinking some more of the royal wine. Instead of doing that, he has the book of memorable deeds brought to him and read. He doesn't request a bedtime story. This probably would put him to sleep as much as anything. He wanted an account read of all the things that has happened while he's been in power. Sounds pretty boring, right? And we're told of all the things that could have been read to him because he's been in power for more than a decade now. Lots of things have happened, right? He's replaced a queen. He has gone to war with Greece. He's elevated Haman. Lots of things happen. Of all the things they find and read, they read about what Mordecai had done for him in saving his life. Y'all remember the story. We just talked about it. While Mordecai is at the king's gate, he discovers a plot by two of the king's eunuchs to assassinate the king. He lets Esther know. Esther lets the king know, and the plan is stopped. The king's life is spared, and these men are killed. And when that is read, the king stops the one doing the reading and says, what do we ever do for that guy? And one of the king's young men says, nothing. They, they messed up, didn't they? It's a major oversight. In this day, if you saved the king's life, you were rewarded. Herodotus, the Greek historian, also known as the father of history, says that there was an assassination attempt on Xerxes' brother, and the man who reported it was made governor. And that's the king's brother. Mordecai had not received anything for saving the king's life. Here we finally see the king waking up a bit to who the good guys are. And, and here we see that Xerxes does have a little bit of a conscience, right? 
This is the first time we've really seen this. He could have shut the books and continued on and no one would have ever thought anything about it because years had passed since that took place. But he thinks here, man, we should have really done something for this guy and we didn't do anything. So right here we see God working through this sleepless night of this king to open the king's eyes to Mordecai. And spoiler alert, we are going to see the king's eyes opened even wider in chapter 7 to who Haman is after the second dinner party with, with Esther. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the winds of God's presence are beginning to blow, aren't they? We see it through him opening the eyes of this blind king. We also see it, point number two, through him exalting a lowly Jew with the death sentence. Look at how he does it. This is great right here. Look at verse four. And the king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about what? About having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Do you see God's providence here? The king has been up all night and he has just received word that Mordecai has done this incredible thing for him to save his life and he wants to seek counsel on how to honor Mordecai and he asks who's in the court and of all the people we're told Haman is there. He's in the outer court of the king's palace coming to speak to the king about killing Mordecai. They both want to talk about Mordecai, right? Haman wants to kill him. The king wants to honor him. We know why the king wanted to honor him. Remember why Haman wants to kill him? He's coming home from the first dinner party, sees Mordecai. Mordecai does not bow in his presence once again. Haman goes home angry. His foolish counselors say, you got to kill him. Build a gallows at his house to hang Mordecai on. He's going before the king to bring this matter, hoping that the king will let him kill Mordecai early. So they both want to talk about Mordecai. Notice what happens. Look at verse 5. The king asked, who's in the court? Verse 5. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, now this is, he's saying this to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Notice here, though we know who the king's talking about, Haman doesn't. He, he thinks there's nobody he could be talking about other than me. We said last week, Haman was blinded by a love for himself, a desire for self-glory. Haman loved him some Haman. He thought no one was greater. He, he could not even fathom that the king would be talking about anyone other than him. So notice here, he lets his imagination run wild. We see here what Haman truly desired here in his response. Look at verse 7. And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. So not just any royal robes will do. He wants royal robes that have been worn by the king, and he's not finished. And the horse that the king has ridden, 
and on whose head a royal crown is set. He wants royal robes worn by the king. He wants the king's horse, verse 9. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials, next to Haman, of course. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman says to this man you want to honor, let him be dressed in your royal robe, let your horse be handed to him by the king's most noble official, let them dress him up and give him a parade through the square of the city. Do you see the arrogance of this man? You're going to talk about in your study guide this week that you have in your bulletin about this exchange. And I made a mistake. That's my mistake on your study guide. It says it's between Esther and Mordecai. I must have been trying to do three things at that. I don't know why I did that. But it's between uh, Haman and Xerxes. So you can change that on Wednesday. It's a question on your study guide. But you're going to talk about this encounter. Very, 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 very important. Lots of lessons to learn. Notice Haman thinks the king is talking about him. He thinks he's the guy that the king delights to honor. And the king asks, what should be done for him? He says, give him your robe and a horse. Let him be dressed in your best and throw him a parade. That's pretty arrogant. I'm sure nobody in here has ever requested a parade in your honor. Am I right? But there are lessons that that can be learned from Haman. One of the questions you're going to be challenged with this week in your study guide is to ask yourself if you're like him in any way. Are you like Haman? Think about the things you desire the things you desire the most, and ask yourself, are your desires, for the most part, centered on you and your glory or centered on God and His? You have a better idea. Very, very important question to ask. Look at verse 10. This is so good. This is worth you coming in today, right here. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse. He agrees with Haman, right? Take them as you have said and do so to whom? To Mordecai. The Jew who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Now, I I don't know this for sure, but I like to think that Haman is just sort of half-heartedly listening and shaking his head. And when he hears the king say, say, hurry, do what you have said to Mordecai, imagine he's kind of, then he stops and like, wait, wait, what? Mordecai. Did I hear you correctly? Haman was blindsided, right? He was thinking about his great parade, and now he's just heard that he has to do this for Mordecai. He was going to request that he kill Mordecai early at his house on the gallows, and now he has to throw him a parade. Is that not awesome? Our God has a sense of humor, does he not? And and get this, Haman has basically volunteered himself to dress him and lead the parade because who's more noble to the king than Haman? What a turn of events. Look at verse 11. It just gets better and better unless you're Haman. 
So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I love this. Think about this now. Mordecai never praised Haman before anyone, but at the end of this story, Haman praised Mordecai before everyone. God is in control in this pagan Persian land through a pagan Persian leader to elevate, to exalt his humble servant. May that set you at ease this morning. God is on the throne. God is at work for the sake of his people, for his own glory, for his purposes. Amen? Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Boy, he's having a bad day. We'll learn later. Words already got out that he has built gallows at his house for Mordecai. And now Mordecai was the man that the king honored more than anyone else. Verse 13. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, which he is, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now they gave some foolish advice earlier, but I believe God is speaking through Haman's wicked and godless friends and wife here. They're basically saying the tide is turning for the Jews because Mordecai is a Jew. You don't, they don't even know about Esther yet. That bomb is coming in a minute. And because that's the case, because Mordecai is of the Jewish race, you're going to fall before him. Because you are an enemy of his people and of Mordecai, and because the tide is turning for him, it's turned for him and it's turning for them, I hate to tell you this, but because this is the case, you are going to surely fall. This is probably your end, Haman. And at that moment, we're told in verse 14, while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had Prepared. Little did Haman know his day was about to get a lot worse. We're going to see the winds of God's presence and his providential work even more clearly in chapter 7. We've looked at how God has opened the eyes of a blind king and how he has exalted a lowly Jew with the death sentence. Now notice finally we're going to see God through providence ends the life of a powerful Persian leader. Haman's day is about to get worse. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. Haman is, is dining with the king and the queen at the queen's request for a second day. And, and we said last week that, that Esther is going to make her request known during this feast. And we talked about how Esther has wisely waited for the right moment to strike. Look at verse 2. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, sounds like as good a time as any, right? They've eaten, they're enjoying the royal wine, they're relaxed at this time. The king said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This is the third time 
the king has said that, which lets us know is probably a standard response by the king when, when granting a request in this day. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request, for we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, they, they don't know what people she is, she belongs to yet. I want you to notice that. So Haman's not taken off guard just yet, I don't believe. But notice we see here a bold changed woman, don't we? Esther has truly made a great transformation. God has done this work in her. He has, he has changed her. At the beginning of this book, she is in the shadows, hiding her Jewishness, living as a pagan Persian, even though she is Jewish. Here she is boldly standing before her king on behalf of her people. She's about to make it known that she is a Jew, and she is about to stand for the Jewish people against this wicked decree. Now, notice again, like we talked about last week, notice the wisdom in Esther's response. Notice how carefully she says things. She says, if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. She says, if we were simply in danger of being enslaved, I would not bother you with this matter. But it's much, much worse. We have been sentenced to die. I stand before you pleading for my life. And notice how the king responds. The then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? Now, the king is angry, but don't start looking favorably at King Xerxes like he's a hero of Esther, okay? That is not the case. We learn throughout this book that he spent 30 days or more away from her. In the history books, we were told that he loved his harem more than he loved being with his queen. She did not even know if, if he would let her come into his presence uninvited. She thought she might lose her life. He is not a champion for Esther. Get this, he is a champion for himself for his own name, for his own glory, because an attack against the queen is an attack against the king, and he is hot about it. King Xerxes says, who would dare do this? Who would dare attack the household of the king? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Now again, I don't know this for sure, but I'd like to think that Haman is just kicking back having a sip of the royal wine. And when she says, this wicked Haman, I'm sure he just, you know? Who, what, me? You talking about me? I mean, I, I like to picture that's how it went down. Boy, he's having a bad, bad day, isn't he? We're told that Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I imagine so. Verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, anger and probably drunkenness here. Not a good combo. He went into the palace garden. He needed some fresh air to think. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther. He is bowing at the feet of his enemy. Esther Hadassah, a Jewish woman. Boy, he has been brought low, hadn't he? James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
We see him do that in this story, in these two chapters with with, uh, Haman and Mordecai. Haman knows he's in trouble. He begs for his life before Esther. Verse 7 again. For he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? Now we know Haman would not do such a thing, right? He wouldn't dare do something like that. But we do know that the king did not trust men in the presence of his queen. Normally, only his eunuchs were allowed, so that shows you what special privilege it was for Haman to get to dine with the king and queen in private. But he's a little too close to the queen when he returns, and we also know that the king is probably looking for a reason to be rid of Haman, and here is his chance. We're told after the king made this accusation against Haman, as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs and attendants on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. So notice here, Words gotten out already about Haman's plans. And and notice that Mordecai is praised in the king's presence. He says, Mordecai, whose words saved the king. So get this, toward the end of this story, Mordecai is praised in the presence of the king while Haman is condemned. What a turn of events, right? Verse 9 again. Harbona says, Haman has built gallows standing at his house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. What a story. What what great irony in the story, right? God is obviously at work. He has opened the eyes of this blind king, exalted this humble, lowly Jew named Mordecai, and now he has opposed this proud, wicked, self-centered, self-absorbed, self-glorifying Persian leader named Haman. What started out to be the best day of Haman's life, Think about it. He, he was set to dine with the king and queen of Persia for a second time. He thought the king was going to honor him and give him a parade and have his arch enemy Mordecai hung on his own gallows at his house. Turned out to be the worst day of his life and ended up with him having to praise Mordecai and throw him a parade and ended with him being put to death on his own gallows at his house. And I know that sounds to many of you like an extreme turn of events, but that's where many are headed. It is. There are many in our world today going at life on their own, living for self, doing what makes them happy, living life for the praise of men, for self-glory. And and maybe things are going well for these people right now. They're like Haman, dining at the king's table. They, They have money and power and influence. Anything anyone could ever want by the world's standards. Maybe I'm describing you to an extent, not that you have all those things, but that's what you're striving after. That's what you want. That's what you think will bring you happiness. 
up to this point in your life, you've been going at life on your own. Maybe things are going well for you. If this is you, if I'm describing you, I urge you to learn the lesson of Haman. The lesson Haman never learned. It can all change in a moment, and get this, someday it will. Just like that. Like Solomon says in Ecclesiastes, the fate of the rich and the powerful is the same as the poor and the weak and the foolish. We all suffer the same fate in this life. We die as a result of sin. Only those who belong to God through Jesus Christ have life even though they die. For everyone else who doesn't, their fate is much, much worse than physical death it's spiritual death it's the second death it's it's judgment and hell for eternity Haman learned this lesson the hard way I pray you wouldn't truly pray you do not though there is no hope for him today listen there is hope for you you're still here there's still breath in your lungs there's still life in your bones. It's not too late. If you're like Haman in this way, this is my message for you. It's very, very simple. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Whether you're going through a tough time right now or not, whether your world is falling apart or not, you need Jesus. If you don't know him, if you're not trusting in him, you need him. And not just when times are tough, you need him because without him, there is no hope for you. There is no life in you. Without Jesus, we are dead spiritually and we have God's wrath set against us. Not my words, God's words. You may think you're okay because life is going good for you so far. You may not see any need for Christ in your life, but God clearly tells us in his word that a life that is lived apart from him is a life that is opposed to him. It's your truth for the week. So what are we to do? Well, we got to turn from our sin. We got to place our faith and trust alone in God's Son alone for our salvation and be saved. If you have never made this decision, I pray you would right here, right now, today. Turn from your sin, forsake your sin, make God's Son your Lord so that you can be made right with Him, so that you can move from being an enemy of His to a child of His and be saved today. If you've never made this decision, I pray you would today. Let's pray.